This is a Goodwill Media podcast. We know that poverty is associated with instability. Uh, we know that previous instances of poverty around our region have driven political instability. We know that poverty and inequality are not good for economic growth. And if we know one thing about poverty, it's that you can't reduce poverty without growth. In 2021, COVID-19 will continue to test the norms of international relations and the way countries do or don't help each other. In addition to driving up rates of poverty, the pandemic is likely to lead to greater inequality, rivalry, conflict and fragmentation. But it could also be the catalyst for reinvigorating international relations, reviving global civil society and finding long overdue ways to tackle development problems that put local leadership at the heart. I'm Bridie Rice, Director at the Australian Council for International Development and your guest host this summer at Goodwill Hunters. And you're listening to the fifth of a six-part series examining Australian development and foreign policy. Today, my guest is James Gilling from the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. James has plenty to give in this episode and it's the department's expertise at its best. James starts with an articulate and heartfelt depiction of the reality of increasing poverty and inequality in the region. He sounds the alarm on time being up for twiddling thumbs on localisation, and we chew the fat on the future of Australian development. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the Goodwill Media and Ackford social media channels, so you can join in the discussion. Enjoy the episode, and join me next week when I'll be speaking to our last guest, young leader extraordinaire, Serena Sassingen from PNG. The final word goes to the Pacific on this series when it comes to Australian development and foreign policy. James, welcome to Goodwill Hunters Summer Series on Development and Foreign Policy. Great to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks very much, Bridie. James, you've spent over 30 years working in international development with long stints in Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, Nigeria, Fiji, and you've led the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade's Pacific Division. But currently, you're heading up the Humanitarian and NGO Division. And I've seen you in action a bit over the last few years. We know you for being super well-read. You put facts at the heart of hot debates. And most recently, I've seen you consistently bringing the development aspirations of our partners to the heart of what is sometimes an Australia-first Canberra discussion on, on foreign policy and development. But before we get into all that, let's kick off by telling us a little about some of the early influences in your life. Thanks, Bridie. Uh... I seem to recall not being very enthusiastic about going to university, and uh, it was my dad, I think, who suggested I go and study economics and uh, agricultural economics, which I hadn't done at all at school. And having got into that course at uh, university, this whole world opened up. So I guess the, the first point to make is it was complete luck, as many people's careers are. But in terms of early influences in in my career, I think I'd pick out at least a couple of uh, events. The first was that I was fortunate enough to be uh, an Overseas Development Institute fellow, um, and I worked in Papua New Guinea. And the great thing about that scheme is that you work, you're not a consultant, you're effectively a volunteer, and you work two local uh, managers. So my manager was a, a local man, Michael, who had, he hadn't been to university, he was um, head of the marketing area. And I learned so much from him. And I learned so much about the way that local public services actually operate. So the rats that crawled across Michael's um, 
cubicle were the same rats that crawled across my cubicle. And uh, th those were the experiences that really helped me understand the realities of uh, life for the governments uh, of poorer countries. Um, and then a second influence was, um, I, again, I was very lucky to work for a, an economic consulting group in the UK, Oxford Policy Management. And it was founded by some economics professors from uh, Oxford, Oxford University. And just my um, exposure to just really cutting edge, sensible, technical insights really helped me uh, structure my, my disciplines and structure my thinking. Um, the, the language we always used to use was around conceptual models and Oxford Policy Management, which was the name of the company, really helped me frame my, my conceptual narratives around the work that I've been involved in, as you say, all my life. Yeah, right. So James, fast forwarding from years in PNG with uh, rats and, and then onto conceptual models with OPM, you're now a development expert with 30 years history. You have an international reputation for your expertise and you're also a committed public servant. What keeps you in the department? Well, I, I mean, I think for me, it's about my ability to um, make a difference, uh, not just um, my ability to make a difference in countries where people experience lives that are in many ways unimaginable for us here in, in Australia, um, but also my bringing to bear my uh, experience um, to support other people um, work in the same sorts of areas. I, I get a lot of satisfaction from um, helping support the growth of some absolutely fantastic people who work uh, within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, um, but also being able to work um, in those countries themselves um, and to support and learn from um, the public servants of those countries. We are here chatting today because of one simple fact, and that is for the first time in a generation, and heck, James, that is as long as you've been in the department, the World Bank predicts a rise in extreme poverty. And this raises a question about the long game for Australia and our relations in the region, a region full of emerging economies. Can you tell me a little about what increased poverty in our neighbourhood means to you? Well, I mean, in many ways, it's, it's, of course, Bridie, it's not what it means to me. It's what it means to the, 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 the hundreds of millions um, of people who experience that in their day-to-day -day lives. And I would add that it's not just poverty. One of the um, phenomenon uh, that we're dealing with here is not just poverty, it's also inequality. And that's going up. And that, too, is, is problematic. So, I mean... You know, I, I look back on, on my career and I'm, I've typically worked in capital cities and I've typically worked, um, you know, in fairly, um, fairly pleasant circumstances, notwithstanding some of my earlier experiences. Um, but there's times when I've uh, gone out and seen the lives of people who experience poverty and it, it's, it is almost undescribable. Um, some time ago I was... Australia's ambassador for HIV, AIDS, TB and malaria. And I remember being taken to a part of Jakarta where um, local um, injecting drug users um, used to um, shoot up. And it would be hard to describe a, a more powerless and more um, unpleasant 
experience for them. It was literally a rubbish heap. It was the only place they could go where they weren't sort of chased away. Um, and they would sit in a corner in this, you know, as you know, in Jakarta, extreme heat. The stench was indescribable um, with syringes hanging out of what few veins they'd got left that could accept their hit. And I, I remember thinking just um, what an extraordinary metaphor that was for some of the lives that people have to leave, the powerless, um, the deprived, um, the poor. So that's what it means to individuals. But what it means in numbers terms is, is just as, as shocking. And if you bear in mind what I just described as a sort of characterization of powerlessness, I, I was reading a couple of days ago that they've just done some surveys in Bangladesh of the impact of COVID on poverty there. As we know, Bangladesh, an incredibly dynamic place, but it still has a, a great deal of poor people. And if you look at the people who live in absolute poverty, which as we know, the bank describes as being below $1.90 um, a day, that's US, but still absolute penury, their consumption, which is probably the most accurate way to measure um, poverty because poor people typically don't have incomes. So you look at what they consume, their consumption between 2018 and 2020 has fallen by 45%. So the people I describe, um, their misery has, has fallen by, by 45, has increased by 45%. So what does it mean? It means huge more, hugely more people living in hugely more desperate circumstances. That's at the personal level. And then, you know, what does it mean in terms of Australia um, beyond our own personal experience with poverty? What does it mean? It means we know that poverty is associated with uh, instability. Uh, we know that previous instances of, of poverty um, around our region have driven political instability. We know that poverty and inequality are not good for economic growth. And if we if we know one thing about poverty, it's that you can't reduce poverty without growth. So if poverty and inequality are bad for growth, you can see if we don't um, act, we can be locked in this situation where more and more people becoming poor. And in the face of that acute rise in poverty inequality, it's links to instability and challenges to growth. What then is the regional scenario room looking like? What are our best and worst case options for what we're going to see in the coming years? Well, I mean, it's it's incredibly difficult. We 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 typically, when we study poverty, when we study inequality, we use the, the data that we use has been improved hugely through this massive uh, use of household income and expenditure surveys. But one of the things that COVID has disrupted is our ability to do these sorts of things. By our, I'm talking about the whole world, not just Australia. So it's hard to put your finger on exactly what's happening at the grassroots level. But what we do know, for example, in the, in the Pacific region, is that um, the economies particularly that have been reliant on tourism um, have seen their incomes fall hugely. So the GNP for uh, Fiji, I understand, has fallen around 20%. For Samoa, Palau, Vanuatu, that's fallen by about 10%. So what we've seen is um, some really substantial um, impacts on country incomes. And when those incomes collapse, we know 
that services, the sorts of services that we know are essential to help people escape from poverty, to build human capital, um, those will suffer as well. So the downside or what does, what does sort of bad look like? We, we're, in many ways, we're already seeing it. But, but what does good look like? I mean, we've seen uh, the Australian government um, step up, to use that, to use that term, uh, in our region with a range of, um, of new initiatives. Um, we've seen uh, one-off uh, increases announced by uh, the Prime Minister that sees um, more than the standard $4 billion a year going into the Pacific, going into Southeast Asia. These have been recent announcements. We're seeing um, some really innovative um, work happening um, around areas like social protection. Um, why is social protection important? Well, if we think about um, what's happening in, in the developed world, um, we think about the sorts of money that's being spent by governments like our own um, to support the people whose livelihoods have been massively impacted by COVID-19. Um, we're seeing you know, social security payments, social um, payments, access to, to food banks, that sort of thing. These are, are, are payments which help families to withstand poverty and survive poverty. Because one of the things that poverty does, uh, particularly if it drags on, and I talked earlier about tourism and, you know, who knows when um, that will return to normal. When poverty drags on, people cope by having to sell assets and they, assets can be productive. Um, people cope by not spending money on their health. People cope by not spending money on their food and that erodes their capacity. So we have to step in. So as I say, we're seeing things like um, uh, new work, um, including with some of Australia's great NGOs, to build social protection systems. We're seeing some of the best work that I've seen um, within the department taking place to support budget support for the governments of the region to help them manage their, their debt burdens, but also to help them focus money on the sorts of social services which are so necessary to help people survive uh, this situation. So it can look terribly bad, but I think we and, and other donors and of course the partner governments themselves, um, who are the most critical element to this, are building um, those systems uh, to help people um, withstand this this absolutely devastating impact. Mm. James, partner governments and of course development corporations globally have a rich history of tackling poverty together. And we have seen situations like this before to some extent. The Asian economic crisis springs to mind, for example. What lessons is Australia drawing from those previous experiences that we can apply to our development programs today? Well, I suspect everybody who's living today hasn't witnessed exactly this level of impact before. But the lessons from the financial crisis was the um, importance of acting early. Um, I talked about the importance of, of social services. Uh, and as we know, I think one of the early um, reactions in the, um, in the financial crisis in um, the late 90s was um, to bring in uh, austerity measures which in many ways made um, poverty worse and may have um, lengthened that period that people had to um, put up with these terrible conditions. So I think 
you often hear people talk about going hard and going early. And um, I think that's probably the key lesson that we've learned. And you saw it here in Australia with the Australian aid program, the launch of partnerships for recovery very quickly after we'd understood the nature of COVID in the region, not only refocusing the existing um, aid program, but also creating um, temporary measures that would allow us to um, do more than the uh, existing amount. So going early and going hard, I think, has been the main lesson. But I think there are also lessons in there about how we work uh, with partner governments as well. And I think we're getting better at this as time wears on. Um, but understanding the, uh, the drivers, understanding the capacity, understanding the particular circumstances of each of our countries, there are no one-size-fits-all models to solutions here. We can't simply walk in and prescribe some off-the-shelf model. We have to understand the circumstances and the realities and the capacities of each of our partners. Hmm. And James, looking beyond our shores for a moment, there's a lot of change exactly in that field in terms of how countries are engaging in development cooperation and how they're prioritising it. Just this year in January, the US appointed Samantha Power as administrator of the USAID program. And pardon the pun, but it is a powerful appointment. Um, the US also gave her a seat at the national security table, meaning that development advice a president receives is unfiltered. It's direct from development experts to political leaders, right up there alongside equally important issues of trade, consular affairs and security. And so for those of us in the sector, that's a no-brainer. As our region faces more poverty or more crises, the challenges that you're depicting, people who understand preventing and responding to those challenges should have a seat at the highest table so they can work out the solutions. What cue is government taking from this move to elevate the development portfolio in the US? Well, of course, it's incredibly early days yet, but, but our um, foreign minister who has responsibility for our, our development um, portfolio is a cabinet minister and I have absolutely no doubt uh, is a very strong and informed uh, advocate and uh, and uh, engager with um, with her cabinet colleagues on some of the challenges of the region and as you know the department has um, wonderful capacity to, to engage with and, and advise uh, Minister Payne on these issues. So I think in terms of having representation at the highest levels, I think um, it's great that that the United States has has adopted this, and I think um, Australia is in is in a, a good place um, in respect to that. But your your question also goes to the to the issue of sort of evolution and change, and I think one of the things that uh, it's important to point out is that. Um, we, we are seeing change in the way that development is practiced. You pointed to the changes in the United States within USAID, but much more broadly than donors, we're seeing um, a, a development environment that's changing rapidly. And thank goodness it is, right? Because, you know, if we don't change, it's, it's dangerous. If we just stick by our guns, it's dangerous because the world is changing very rapidly and we have to change with it. We have to be uh, open-minded enough, informed enough, humble enough to be able to make those changes now in our development environment where we have um, all kinds of organisations, the philanthropics, 
um, many more NGOs, as you know. We've got a huge, more, a hugely greater number of donors operating in the space. In the last few weeks, China launched its, I think it was its third white paper on its own aid program. And, you know, this isn't just new players coming in to play in an existing field. This is new players coming in and changing the way that things are managed. And we talk about, um, you know, the importance of localization. We talk about the importance of concepts like decolonizing aid. What they reflect is um, the evolution of the development space. And thank heavens it is changing because um, let's face it, life is getting, is getting more and more complex. Um, I heard just this morning on the radio that even this virus that we think we're starting to develop systems to, to manage is mutating and we've got to evolve to manage that. So um, it's, a, it's an increasingly complex um, system. It's great that the United States is, um, is making these moves and I'm sure um, USAID will, will be very effective with its, with its new leadership, but it's just part of a, of a very dynamic sector that we have to keep um, supporting in, in the way that it changes because the problems change. Let's stick with these changing models of development for a moment. Since you've taken up the humanitarian chair in the department, you've been a great advocate for Australia keeping its commitments on localisation. Why is that so important for Australia? Well, when when uh, somebody asked me that a, a few months ago in in, in the team, and um, and my response was um, to paraphrase um, Trudeau, who's and that. That is to say, because it's 2021. I think the question was asked of me in 2020, <laughs> so I may have adapted it slightly. But the point, the point is, um, you know, um, we are no longer in this space where we can uh, get, get away with um, not engaging with our partners. Not only is it um, an important element of, you know, social justice and social progress, it's also an important part of learning how to effectively engage development. And guess what? You know, the people who can tell me how best we can support uh, injecting drug users in Indonesia are definitely not the, um, you know, ambassadors in Australia who, who have no such experience to call. And the best people who can help the farmers of, of Papua New Guinea to improve the way that they um, plant their sweet potatoes and harvest their sweet potatoes is is not research scientists it's people who day in day out experience the realities um and you know this this is this so has to change i can remember um one this, one of your disadvantages brian is that i have been in the industry so long so i've got limitless supplies of anecdotes but I, <laughs> i'm enjoying them so I, far james I'm an agricultural economist, and I did some work once in Uganda for um, several months on um, something called Highlands Banana, which is their staple crop in many parts of that country. And I went round um, with a group of researchers and a lot of local people talking about some of the pests and diseases of Highlands Banana, and we would go into villages and talk to people about the challenges that they were facing. And uh, one day we were in this village, and there was a group of women and this very, very strong woman was talking in her local language and she was making a very, very forceful point. 
um, and I turned to a, one of my um, colleague males and I said, she seems really passionate. What's she saying? And he said to me, she's lying. <laughs> he didn't explain to me what she was doing. And I use that example to, to demonstrate that local people have got so much to tell us. We need to be much, much better at listening. Localization in part is about operationalizing that. It's about recognizing that local people are in a, the best position to understand how to change their lives. And it's our job to listen. It just so happens that during COVID, we've seen this massive tail off in terms of our ability to travel. So that when COVID kicked off, one of the, our biggest challenges was how do we get support into the system when so many of the government staff, so many of the multilateral staff, even many of the commercial staff um, had, had to, had had to leave those countries. And the answer, of course, was local organizations. So COVID has, has in many ways forced us to take these localization steps. So for me, Bridie, it's a, it's a question not only of it being the right thing to do and the most effective thing to do, but COVID is creating this opportunity and everybody keeps telling us never waste a good crisis. Well, let's not waste this one. The Goodwill Hunters Summer Series is creating big waves in the development sector. Now, in preparation for our autumn series, we are looking for a brand partner. Could it be you? If your company wants to support development debate, promote your work to our audience, and get brand recognition amongst the leaders of this $5 billion industry, then please get in touch. Your ad could be featured in each of our episodes. Details on how to get in touch are in the show notes. So James, we're talking about listening to local voices first, and that's a real shift of practice for at least a good chunk of a $4 billion aid program that has been born out of colonial roots. And whilst we know there are some seriously progressive changes happening, we've got NGOs devolving head offices and power into the region. We've got the installation of these amazing local leaders, diversity on boards, different funding models, and most importantly, different practices on the ground. This isn't though a new conversation. And the reform up until now hasn't been happening consistently fast. What's the opportunity here for government to turbocharge localization of Australia's development program? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. But but it you know, um, turkeys don't vote for Christmas, right? So making organisations change, um, we can't just rely on it being a good idea to for this change to happen. Um, we have to be able to demonstrate uh, that it's more effective. We have to be able to, to demonstrate that through working more constructively and more openly with local organisations, we can achieve better results at better, at lower cost uh, or more results at the same cost. And I think we can um, demonstrate that. Um, I've been boring you over this conversation with anecdotes. Let me give you another one. I was, um, at the very start of my career, I remember going to this training event um, run by uh, a German group on some planning technique. It was called GOPP, Goal Operated Project Planning. And what they wanted to start with was a, a um, 
with pictures showing you about this sort of colonialized aid response and how we must change the way we behave. And the picture they used was of this very colonial looking guy sitting there in khaki shorts and long socks, sitting down um, with a bunch of um, local people. That's a familiar image. <laughs> and, well, isn't it though? And, and it was sold by the trainers as being um, an example of this very colonial approach. But you know what? This is an absolutely true story, Bridie. Um, and I, at the time, um, you know, believed this to be the case. I subsequently met that bloke and you literally could not find a more open, consultative person. He actually worked and possibly still does as a human geographer within the ANU. And he did his PhD by living, he himself and his family, in a village for some years. So you almost couldn't get further away from the colonial image than, than what these trainers were saying. The reason I raise this is to say that, you know, we need to have an open mind to be able to make change happen. And just as we shouldn't be jumping to conclusions about what local people in the developing world want, nor should we be jumping to conclusions about the way that um, our donors and, and practitioners work. And there are many, many examples uh, of fabulous engagement with local systems and local people within our um, programs. Uh, I, as you say, I, I used to work in Indonesia for, for the department and we had the most extraordinary portfolio of activities with local groups. And I think we can build off those. We've got a really good basis to work off. Our knowledge in the Pacific and of the Pacific is, is really strong. And we can, we can build on that to show uh, more effective aid outcomes. And if we add that with the fact that the world is now revisiting in, in the humanitarian space, we're revisiting the grand bargain this year, I think there are big opportunities for us to drive localization forward. Um, and we've got a, a much more vocal um, group of people within the partner countries themselves who will drive us to that. And if we're not careful, um, I talked earlier about there being a very competitive donor environment now. If we can't uh, match their aspirations, then we won't survive. So we have to change in order to remain um, effective and relevant as a donor. Hmm. There's no doubt, James, over a $4 billion portfolio that we're going to have projects that exhibit great localization practice, projects that perhaps lag behind. Donors like Canada, USAID, New Zealand, they're racing to issue localization statements or policies. And it seems to be one of the intellectual centrepieces of China's new white paper on development as well. Are we going to see an Australian localization roadmap or policy uh, and contractual incentives for doing it? So the first point to make, um, Bridie, is that um, we actually do talk about localization in Partnerships for Recovery. I can't give you the actual page number, but uh, we we'll have go with page twelve. <laughs> okay. Um, so the first thing is we've got that commitment already in our in our latest um, policy document. Um, are we going to see contractual changes? Are we going to see um, uh, broader statements? 
You know, I think we will. You know, because I suspect you've been on some of these calls that the conversations we've been having um, uh, within the ANCP, the Australian NGO Cooperation Programme, the conversations we've been having within other humanitarian partners has been very um, assertive about the importance of localization. And while final decisions about, you know, policy statements, et cetera, obviously sit with, with the minister, um, you know, the, the, the momentum is clearly with us. Um, and many of the moves that we made right at the beginning of COVID um, were about strengthening the, our capacity to work with, with local groups. So will we see changes? Yes, I, I, I think we will. Do I have the uh, mandate to unilaterally announce these changes? No, I don't. <laughs> James, it, it sounds as though you're making a very, very coaching case for time's up. Things have got to change, particularly on the localisation front. But at the same time, you're also saying there is no easy answer here. One size does not fit all in terms of localisation, community to community, country to country. But there's another challenge as well to localisation. And the word around town is that one of the biggest ones is the fear of fraud and that really the debate amongst many donors and here in Australia is that the barrier to localisation all boils down to a contest between progressive policy ambition on localization and risk adverse financial managers. How do you break that impasse? Yeah, that's another great question. And I was um, I was on some phone calls late at night and early in the morning with Europe, um, actually about um, issues around the grand bargain. And that point you raised was raised by a number of um, of colleagues from other. Donors, so there's no doubt it's a powerful uh, force that is um, constraining or at least uh, modifying our, the pace at which we can move. So, having said that, I suspect um, I don't have them to hand, but I suspect if we comb through the the minister's um, recent speeches, I'm sure we'll find that she is she exhorts us to be. Um, bolder in taking risks. Certainly our secretary and, and the department is very focused on taking risks. And as it happens, um, one of my previous jobs was managing part of the department whose job it was to manage fraud and risk. And I can tell you that our systems are evolving uh, very rapidly to be able to do that. Um, it's another example of how um, maybe common acceptance um, of what the situation is, is a little bit of a misreading. Um, I can assure you that um, our system is not designed to eliminate risk. It's designed to manage risk. And we have got in place teams who are, are looking at how we can do this more effectively. The challenges are immense. And, you know, we, we haven't talked in detail about, about them, but it's not just the risk of fraud. It's the risk of you know, inadvertently funding terrorist organisations, and as we, and that's not just a tragedy um, uh, in terms of public money being diverted into outrageous uses. It's it's also illegal. So we've got to make sure that we don't make these mistakes. But one of the ways we're doing that is by being transparent and open about it. And our, um, quite often we find in in even in Senate estimates hearings, we have a robust conversation with senators 
about managing those risks. And the point that we almost always make is that we can't eliminate risk, but we need to learn when we make mistakes and change our systems. And I believe that's that's what we're doing. So to those people who believe that it's it's as simple as being just about our lack of willingness to take risks, I would say that that's, that's a misreading of the situation and I'm very happy to work with our NGO program um, to strengthen our system so that we can deal with some of those issues and drive further our, our localization agenda. Certainly, James, if we can do direct budget support to places like Papua New Guinea, uh, we can certainly progress on localization as well. It sounds as though we're both optimists on that front. But James, we are nearing the end of our time together today. And I want to finish with two final questions. And the first is, in the 30 years that you've been working in development programs, what is the one biggest lesson you've learned? Um, I suppose my biggest lesson is that um, it's never me that knows the answer. So it, I guess my biggest lesson is about humility. Um, the life is infinitely complex. And in fact, paradoxically for poor people, it's more complex than you would ever imagine. I once read a, a, a paper about how many different sources of loans um, poor people have um, to cope with the ups and downs of, of, their, um, of their lives lives and livelihoods. Life for a poor person is massively complex and um, somebody even with 30 years experience who's been lucky enough to go to university and have some amazing jobs and amazing colleagues, um, it, it's always about listening um, it's never about having the right answer. Mm. And finally, it's your 20th birthday in a month or two in the department this year. What would be on your development birthday wish list? Yeah, my kids always say I'm terrible to buy for, so um, maybe that's <laughs> it's not the best question for me. But, I mean, going back to what you've discussed with some of your, your previous guests, uh, um, I'm I'm sitting here looking at a, a bookshelf which has far too many books that I still need to read. But I saw a friend of mine sent me a couple of days ago the out, um, the announcement for a new book by Danny Roderick um, mm. called um, Combating Inequality, Rethinking Government's Role. And he's written that with, uh, I think, with Oliver Blanchard. Um, and I think that, that question of inequality, as I said right at the beginning, you know, we focus on, on poverty, but, um, you know, we know that, um, inequality has so entrenched. The numbers are, are amazing. I think in the US, the top um, 1% used to own, I think it was 25% of the wealth back in the 70s, and now they are getting on for half of the wealth, uh, and that's replicated everywhere else. So um, reading something about what can be done to deal with what I described earlier, a, a major challenge to, to growth and poverty reduction uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be a bad start. Well, let's see what we can do, James. And for our listeners, we'll put a link to that recommendation from James in the show notes. Well, wonderful, as always, to speak to you, James. Thank you very much for joining us. And we hope that 2021 delivers more great work and great people and great results for you in your portfolio. Thanks very much, Bridie.